according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Real thankful that we have a class this morning. I was anxious to teach. Sunday morning was uh, the 221st and 222nd times that I've taught this year, which equals the previous year. So that means with this morning, class number 223, we're exceeding what we did last year. And we'll do another one tonight, and we'll have another one on Saturday, so we should end the year with 225. It's always awkward to be stuck on the last year's total, and you want to get one more Bible class in. Yes, ma'am? I'll have a, I'll have a message on Saturday night. Yeah, after the dinner, we'll come in here for about an hour. Yep. All right, turn to Matthew chapter 12. And we will continue on. We were looking at, this is now a series of Sabbath controversies that we've been centered on. Starting with the man at the well in John chapter 5 and then the plucked grain. And uh, we're going to move on this morning to the withered hand. Deal with, nope. There we are. Episode number 14 in the Galilean ministry, the withered hand Sabbath controversy taking place in Galilee, recorded in uh, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not recorded by the gospel of John, and uh, we should be able to pick it up where we left it off one week ago today. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside our distractions and give us concentration, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together this morning. We thank you for the circumstances and details of life that you have overseen and directed. You've provided us the finances and transportation and health and schedules and everything else necessary to be here. Thank you that you've made it possible for volition to be exercised to receive instruction. We pray now that you would guide us in the truth and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 12, 9 through 14 This episode follows precisely episode 13 in every respect, uh, being recorded in Matthew chapter 12. The uh, uh, plucked grain was verses 1 through 8, and now the withered hand is verses 9 through 14. Likewise, in Luke, it follows immediately in chapter 6, plucked grain was verses 1 through 5, and the withered hand is verses 6 through 11. It's kind of awkward, though, in the Gospel of Mark. They do follow one right after the other, but there's a chapter division in there. So pluck grain was in chapter 2 of Mark, uh, verses 23 through 28, and then the withered hand in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it's kind of weird how the Gospel of Mark puts a a, uh, chapter division in there where neither Matthew nor, nor Luke does that. So... Anyway, we, uh, we're going to deal with this. We will look at all three gospel accounts this morning, but I think primarily Matthew will be our main text. Let's just read through it in Matthew 12, 9 through 14. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he was said to them, verse 11, 
What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable uh, then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him so as how they might destroy him. And uh, passage ends there as far as this episode is concerned. We'll move on in episode 15 with the healing of the multitudes. That takes us down through verses 15 through 21. And then the selection of the 12 apostles will come up here after the uh, first of the year. All right. The Mark record and the Luke record are very similar. They have some details that distinguish themselves, but we will, uh, we will focus on that when we get to each point of study. First of all, we're going to observe four main things in this, four main observations. First of all, this confrontation takes place even before the miracle is accomplished. This confrontation takes place, and it is a confrontation between the religious leaders and our Lord. And uh, where it shouldn't be a confrontation, it shouldn't be an adversarial role. When you put yourself in an adversarial face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ, that's a problem. Because we should be in a love relationship. We should be in a supportive, not a confrontational relationship. But here it is, as a confrontation. And this uh, demonstrates the progression. Now we should be in this face-to-face relationship of love and acceptance and welcome and, and everything. But we do the same thing when we, and we're going to learn this in the book of James, when we make ourselves a friend with the world. And it says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility towards God? And we can put ourselves back into an adversarial or confrontational mode, even though we shouldn't be, because we've been redeemed, we've been made alive, we've been... Uh, reconciled and we should be in a in a love relationship you know there's a couple of different things that can happen when you're face to face in in very close proximity it means one of two things <laughs> either on the positive side you are very loving and intimate and tender and very close with the person that you're that you're that close to or just the opposite you are ferociously antagonistic think baseball umpires think when Tommy Lasorda or who are some of the famous ones, Billy, uh, there were some real famous ones from years back, uh, Lou Pinella even in some cases, and they would just get face-to-face, nose-to-nose, beat red, screaming, yelling, and we have that expression. We have in your face, and that's the, that's the aspect of it. Well, when you're face-to-face, I mean, this close, it means one of two things. It's either a positive, very intimate, loving type setting, or... It is a confrontational, angry type setting, and that's what we have here. We should have the other with our Lord. As believers, we should have face-to-face intimacy with Jesus Christ. Well, now notice how we've seen this accelerate, because the Pool of Bethesda incident, the confrontation took place after the miracle. Remember that from John chapter 5? It's been a few weeks now since we've been there. We had a little disjointed study because of the... uh, vacation and having a couple of weeks off and so forth. But in John chapter five, the, the, the Pharisees were nowhere around. They were not even at present at the scene, didn't realize that uh, Jesus was even in town, so to speak, as he was coming into Jerusalem through the sheep gate of all places. You know, no one who desires to be seen, who no one who's 
trying to make a big splash or a massive presence would would enter Jerusalem through the sheep gate. That's just not the way you would do it. You would make a big display of who you are and who your followers are and and uh, and all the rest. And that's really the Pharisees orientation. Well, here's Jesus Christ sneaking in, as it were, through the sheep gate and uh, finding a need and finding a man and healing him. As you read in John chapter five, when they say you can't carry your pallet in the Sabbath. And he says, well, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And then, well, they want to know who was it. And then it was only afterwards. Jesus finds him in the temple, tells him uh, uh, about a sin problem and the different things. And then he goes and he finds the critics and then they start persecuting him. So the uh, the confrontation came after the miracle. So point B in the plucked grain incident. Remember when the confrontation took place? In the plucked grain incident, the confrontation took place as the activity unfolded while it was still happening. And the, the language here is in Matthew 12 is really quite vivid, really all the accounts in describing how the activity just began. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Uh, I, I can just picture this activity was still taking place. You know, Peter still had a mouthful. He's chomping, you know, it's like catching your child when we haven't prayed yet for the meal. Right. We haven't prayed yet to to um, offer thanksgiving to sanctify the meal and so forth, to bless the meal. And uh, and you say, wait a minute, we haven't prayed yet. And all of a sudden it's just. Right, because Zoe and Christopher just got caught with French fries in their mouth or whatever it was, you know, and so now they got their cheeks all bulged out and they're acting like they haven't eaten yet. See, well, okay, well, I usually offer thanks for the food and including the the food that's already in Zoe's mouth and that kind of thing. Well, I can just picture that here because here's Peter and James and Andrew and all those guys and they're they're eating the grain, and the and right there, right on the spot. The Pharisees are demanding of Jesus, why are you letting them do that? Why are you authorizing their Sabbath breaking? So that that was an acceleration, as it were. Now, with this one, it's accelerated even more because here the confrontation precedes the activity. Here, it's like uh, like a line in the sand. It's like the gauntlet thrown down. Because there's the man with the withered hand. There's Jesus. And here's the Pharisees just on edge, ready to condemn him. In other words, saying, don't you dare heal this man. They're going to make sure that they have this confrontation even before the miracle's done. Because they're having this big problem with the miracle. The fact that he's doing them, they hate it. Because <laughs> they're not doing any. And the fact that these works are taking place is making it undeniable as far as the people are concerned that he's from God. And... They uh, they really go into conniptions because he's doing these miracles and they're losing the support of the people. And it, it really starts causing them more problems and, and to the point where they start to say, you know what, we've got to put a stop to this or everybody's going to start following him. If we just let him keep doing these miracles. So it gets to the point where the Pharisees realize they have to stop the miracles from taking place. And it almost seems like that's why now they're going to jump on him before the miracle. Like they know it's coming, <laughs> you know, here's the man with the withered hand. Here comes Jesus into their synagogue on this Sabbath day. 
And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, man, he's going to heal this guy. And for them, that's bad. Can you imagine? Being so warped and so caught up in your own legalism that the anticipation of a work of divine power is looked upon with dread. It's like, ooh, we can't let that happen. Never mind that the guy with the withered hand is going to be better and he's going to have a nicer life and things are going to start working out for him. No, they would rather see him crippled forever than to see Jesus Christ get credit and glory and power. All right. I find it interesting. So we also are noticing this acceleration as far as uh, as far as that goes. I think a couple of passages, if I can find them, and I probably should have started the Libronics before we even got going this morning, just in the because I anticipated we were going to try to find some of these passages. John chapter three is one I can find real easily. Because it's one we've already covered, and it's one that I think spells it out very well. In John 3, 2, we have the admission on Nicodemus's part that really reflects all of the Pharisees' thinking. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he's not just a low-ranking Pharisee. He is one of the, the leaders, one of the rulers. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, interesting the Lord never really took that title himself, never insisted upon it himself, but he was recognized by the Pharisees as being a legitimate teacher, as being an authoritative teacher, and that's why they give him here the title rabbi. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there is their admission, the undeniable admission that he was indeed sent from God and that uh, they couldn't debate or dispute the miracles. Now, there's another one where they get amazed with this, and I'm just going to see if I can identify it real quickly for you because it uh, is so vital. Now, we know in the aspect with the miracles, and they say we have to stop them, and if we don't, then the whole world will follow after him. So maybe if I just do a quick search here for whole world, I'll find the text that... Uh, that's on the back of my mind. They know that they have to put a stop to these miracles because if they don't, then everyone's going to follow after... Uh, everyone's going to follow after the Savior. John chapter 2 and verse 11. Well, I apologize. I should have found this before the class started. I knew I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to find this text. And the um, really the jealousy. The fact that, that they weren't doing any. Now, one thing they were doing was manipulating people with exorcism and other things and trying to cast out demons and things like that. Um, but they were not doing legitimate miracles as far as expressions of divine power are concerned. So, okay, well, I will not waste our time in class looking for that. We'll find it at, uh, and have it ready for a subsequent class. 
But we do note under point one, as we're observing these things, that the confrontation is accelerating, that they are not uh, waiting for the miracle to be done, almost as if they're dreading every miracle that does get done. Now, under point two, we're going to outline some of the divergent details, divergent details. And it's good to do this. We've done this before. We'll do this again. Where the different accounts diverge. In other words, there are differences in the recorded accounts. And skeptics like to jump on these and say that the contradictions. And because of that, they say that, well, you can't trust the Bible because one place says this, another place says that. And all they really are are skeptics that are looking for a reason to deny the Bible that they hate anyway, because they hate the Bible that convicts them for what they're doing in their life and in their lifestyle and so forth. We look at dis- at differences, not as contradictions, but as differences and they don't they don't contradict but they must complement we try to say okay now how do these fit together because we're going to assume that a is true b is true and c is true we're not going to look at them as contradictions we're going to look at all of them as being true and finding where they uh where they harmonize now as we read in matthew we had i should have probably read mark and luke as well so let's go to mark read mark 3 1 through 6 And see if you spot the difference here. Because in Matthew, as we read it, well, we'll see here when we read the Mark account. Mark 3. One through six. He entered again into a synagogue. And I'm just going to briefly run through the difference in Matthew before I read Mark. Um, In Matthew, remember, uh, departing from there, he went into the synagogue. A man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? All right. Now, in Mark, he entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them. So Mark doesn't record the question that they asked him. See, Mark and Luke do not record the Pharisees question to Jesus. You notice that? But it does say that they were watching. It does say that they were watching. Matthew goes and records the fact that not only were they watching, but they actually phrased a question towards him. Now, do those details contradict? No, they don't contradict. But Matthew, who was actually, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew was the one that was physically, literally there that day, had more information available than either Mark or Luke had available. Mark got his information through the Apostle Peter in all likelihood, and Luke got his information when he was doing research during Paul's uh, Caesarean imprisonment. Reading from Luke here for the moment, Luke 6, 6 through 11, On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. There was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. got up and came forward. So Mark and Luke do not record the Pharisees' question to Jesus. doesn't mean that they were wrong. It means they simply chose not to record that detail. You know, this morning we could record details 
And it doesn't mean that any one of them is wrong. If the members of this audience uh, describe something about the class, uh, one member might describe, you know, the shirt the pastor was wearing. Another might describe the, uh, the cup that he was drinking from. And another might describe the actual message he was giving. Imagine that. And all three, all three accounts would be different. Does that mean that any of them are wrong? No, it means that the different accounts chose to uh, cover different information. You would start to suspect something if they were all identical. <laughs> you know, you'd say, well, who was copying who? And uh, why were they trying to copy and, and so forth? And if everything was identical, why bother with three identical Gospels? You, you would expect that with three synoptic Gospels that you would have differences between them. Otherwise... There's no point. Just write one gospel and done with it. But do make note under this, some point one. In these two gospels, Jesus phrases a question to them in terms of doing good versus doing harm. In these two gospels, Jesus phrases a question to them in terms of doing good Versus doing harm. We have it in Mark 3, 4. We also have it in Luke 6, 9. Neither in, Matthew or, neither in Mark or Luke is there a question to him recorded, but it is recorded that he asked them a question. He said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill. But they kept silent. It is interesting how he turns the table, so to speak. Where instead of just being the punching bag all day long, every day, he stops and he turns the question their direction. See, phrasing in such a way in absolute terms of good versus evil. People don't like that today. <laughs> they don't want to be exposed for the evil for what it is. They don't want to admit the absolutes of right and wrong and God's absolute standard. And so when you phrase something in terms of good and evil, black and white, right and wrong, they, they're not going to like that. They want to tell you that, well, there's more of a nuance. See, it's more gray area. There are no absolutes. And what's right for me may not be right for you. And what's wrong for you is not wrong for me. I'm okay with it. So they, they develop this thing of moral relativism. Likewise, in Luke 6 and verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? Luke doesn't record that they remain silent, but neither does Luke record anything they say. Mark actually records that they remain silent. It's interesting how they were afraid to answer a lot of his questions because they couldn't, they couldn't refute the things he was saying, and so they felt better just not to be publicly exposed. It's better to remain silent. My father used to tell me that better to remain silent and appear foolish than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That was always his wisdom. Secondly, in these two Gospels, Jesus looks around at them. Mark even adds the detail. He looks around at them in anger and he proceeds with a miracle. In these two Gospels, Jesus looks around at them. See, because they're not answering. They're not answering. He's given them a question and they're not answering. And so he looks around. 
You can imagine he's making contact with each one of them eye to eye. He's looking around, not getting any answers from however many there are here. But he gives each of them the opportunity to say something. It's kind of one of those speak now or forever hold your peace moments, right? Do you have one of those in your wedding? <laughs> it always bugs me when people, I've never, I, every wedding I've ever done, I, I never include that. I don't care. You know, one of those if, speak, you know, if you have any objections, blah, 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 speak. I, yeah. People might have all kinds of objections. I don't really care at this moment. <laughs> What better way to disrupt a wedding than to ask for a long list of complaints and gripes? But here's Jesus giving them the opportunity, looking at each one. You going to say anything? You going to say anything? You going to say anything? I asked you a question. You got an answer? And they can't. Because the reality is they are not debating him. They are not even engaging him on a biblical scriptural basis. They're just hating him. For what he's doing. So when it comes right down, and, and we can apply this in, in, in every circumstance, when, in terms of other believers and what they're doing, or other churches and what they're doing and so forth. And people get critical. We brought this up on Christmas Sunday. You know, people get critical because we, uh, we don't observe the liturgical calendar. We don't follow all the Advent season. We don't have all of the, you know, and, and, and if believers are used to that, they come in here, this is quite a shock. You know, because we don't have the vestments and the all the uh, paraphernalia and all the regalia of all the religion and all the rest of that. We're not lighting candles and we're not standing and sitting and standing and sitting. And well, we did a lot of that Sunday night. But generally for a church on Sunday morning, we're not standing and sitting and kneeling and standing and all the rest of that. Okay. And so hostility could develop. Well, why don't you do this? Say, well, rather than debate and argue and about practice and things we're doing, how about we just engage the text? What does the Word of God say? Let's discuss the Scriptures. Yeah. If they don't want to discuss the Scriptures, if all they want to do is argue about the actions, well, then there's probably a reason for that. Okay. Mark 6, or Mark 3, 5, after looking around at them with anger, and we'll deal with the anger at the end. That's the fourth point of study when we focus on anger. But he's not sinning here. This is not a sinful anger. This is a righteous anger. The Lord never sins. So that means this verse is not a sin. You can be angry and not sin. Ephesians even says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, that explains the anger. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Luke chapter 6. I like this. In Luke 6, 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and, it was, and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. All right, Matthew and Mark didn't bother telling us which hand it was. You know, we had a 50-50 chance to guess. But Dr. Luke makes the accurate diagnosis here that it was actually the right hand that was withered. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? After looking around at them, at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored but they themselves were filled with rage now it's quite interesting we'll talk about that anger under point four he had a righteous anger 
They were filled with, right, the other kind of anger. So he looks around at them and he proceeds with a miracle. And this confrontation is so vivid because they're, they're, they're face to face. They're, they're, you know, that gauntlet has been thrown down. And what are you going to do? You either got to throw down a gauntlet of your own, match it and do battle, or you have to walk away. And in, in their mind as legalists, they can't walk away. They've got to win. Because backing down is an admission of defeat. And they certainly can't do that. Now, some point B, Matthew's record details a question, uh, the question of the Pharisees offer. Neither, Matthew, neither Mark or Luke recorded their question. Matthew's record details a question the Pharisees offer and the Lord's reply. Now, his reply contrasts men with sheep. It's a little bit different than what Mark and Luke are recording here, so we can return back to Matthew 12. Matthew's record details a question the Pharisees offer, and the Lord's reply contrasts men with sheep. Matthew 12:10. And affirms the Sabbath's appropriateness for doing good. Verses 11 and 12 kind of mangled that in the speaking those of you sitting here can see it on the screen and copy it down those listening on tape may wonder what's he talking about this is main point two sub point b matthew's record details a question the pharisees offer and the lord's reply contrasts men with sheep matthew twelve ten, and affirms the sabbath's appropriateness for doing good matthew twelve, eleven, and 12 I wrote that run-on sentence before I read Robert's book on uh, commas. Anticipate that the uh, there will be fewer commas and fewer run-on sentences in 2006 because Robert Jewell has dedicated himself to fixing my grammar. So let's look at the record here in chapter 12 again, Matthew 12. They have a question form. Is it lawful? See, now I find it interesting... They ask, is it lawful? He asks, is it good? They're all wrapped up in authority. Because the whole thing with lawful is, is it permissible? When they say, is it lawful, what that means is, is it permissible? Do you have authority? Do you have permission? See, and by that they mean in their eyes. (laughs) Because they are the governing legal authority, at least so far as they're concerned. So they're all wrapped up, is it lawful? And he comes back about, is it good? And by determining whether it's good, that then defines whether it's lawful or not. So verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And their goal in this question was to accuse him. They wanted to accuse him. They wanted to file an accusation. They wanted to, to file an indictment before the Sanhedrin and before themselves, saying that he's a Sabbath breaker. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? So in his reply, he contrasts men with sheep. And that makes it rather obvious, doesn't it? They they can have compassion for a sheep, but this man with a withered hand, they want him to keep the withered hand. 
how much more valuable than, than, logical conclusion, how much more valuable than is a man than a sheep? You, you can't escape it. The human being is more important than the animal. Unless you're a tree hugger, in which case you turn it around backwards. All right? There they've got animal rights, which are more important than human beings. But in this verse, in God's universe, in the reality of things, we're not going to worship the four-footed creature. He also says, so then, here's the conclusion, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. They're all wrapped up over whether it's lawful. Do you have permission? Can you do this? Will we let you? He takes it back to an issue of divine good, doing God's work, obeying God the Father. Doing good is lawful by virtue of being good, by virtue of being in agreement with the plan of God. So it is appropriate. As a matter of fact, what, what better day than the Sabbath? to do a work of divine power, to celebrate God's, God's plan. The Sabbath is very appropriate for doing good. So there's the Lord's answer. Now the third thing. We identify the identical result. The identical result. Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke had different details, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the identical result. Under point two, we looked at the divergent details, but under point three, we can outline the identical result. Jesus Christ defiantly healed the man, even though the scribes and Pharisees disapproved. Jesus Christ defiantly healed the man, even though the scribes and Pharisees disapproved. There's a boldness here that, and, and this isn't the first time we've seen it, it certainly won't be the last time. We'll see it a number of times, and perhaps we may even at some point engage in a study on spiritual boldness, or we might even title it um, Christian guts, Christian spine, all right, because I think there is, a, there is a tendency to go the other direction, maybe a bit far, too far, to where we're, we become Christian spineless, right? And, uh, or Christian doormats and, and so forth. And, and a lot of times they, they cloak it with Bible verses like, well, I'm just going to turn the other cheek, okay? And don't get me wrong, there's an application for turning the other cheek. But it's not the application of... of, of uh, going weak need and becoming spineless other times believers might draw an application saying well you know i don't want to be a stumbling block so i'm gonna i'm gonna not do this and and then that way i can apply the law of love right now wait there's a difference and the main difference being when you've got a weaker brother who's on the verge of stumbling then okay yeah you don't want to be a stumbling block you want to build him up you want to encourage him but these guys are already stumbling <laughs> and these guys aren't necessarily, you know, weaker brothers that are trying to do right. These guys are adversaries. These guys are the brood of vipers that are seeking the Lord's downfall. So it's not a matter of saying, well, I don't want to be a stumbling block. They've already passed that. All right. So there comes this occasion where you do defy the adversary. 
when they say, you know, do this or else, or don't do this or else, you better take them up on that or else and say, you know what? I'm going to teach. See, when it comes right down to it. And it happens, and I think uh, doctrinal churches have faced this in different occasions and so forth, where, uh, you know, it come, uh, uh, there's a faction within a church that says, you know, we want more social life, or we want more programs, or we want more of this or that, and, and uh, you know, we want to compromise on the teaching. The pastor says, all right, that's a gauntlet thrown down. <laughs> says, no, I'm going to defiantly stick to my guns and teach the Word of God, and this is what we're going to do. And if you want to do other things on top of that, over and beyond that, knock yourself out, you can have as much family life as you want to have. But it's not going to come at the expense of the teaching. All right? And so you get to those events. And I think studying the Lord in this circumstance and in similar passages might help us to put a study together on, on uh, the Christian backbone and find out when do you minister in defiance? When do you stick to your guns and do what's right, even though it's going to meet disapproval? And in this case, it's confrontational disapproval. But what if it's simply disapproval of uh, that's not necessarily confrontational? See, Paul had how many people telling him not to go to Jerusalem? He had Philip and Philip's four virgin daughters, the, the prophetesses, and he had Agabus. And everybody was telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. You know what? He did. He defied them. He defied Timothy and everybody else. So I'm going to Jerusalem. We can discuss whether he was right or wrong for that. But nevertheless, he was defiant in what he viewed was the will of God. And uh, we'll have more to say on that when we get to that point in the book of Acts. So here's the identical result. Jesus Christ defiantly healed the man. Defiantly. And he just looks at him. You can almost feel the electricity in the air between them here. He said, uh, he said, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful just based upon what it is, not based upon your permission. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. Just defied them and said, this man's going to get a new hand. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him so as how they might destroy him. <laughs> a miracle is done and well, that's it. That's it. And finally, the Lord's anger and the Pharisees' anger are quite a contrast. Point four, the Lord's anger and the Pharisees' anger are quite a contrast. We already noted the Lord's anger in Mark 3, 5. Let's look at it again because the text in Mark 3 gives us the reason for the anger. It says, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and we start to recognize that the motivation for the Lord's anger is identical with motivation for God's anger. In other words, if God is angry at something, we better be angry also. Because if we don't, what does that mean? It means we've got a different attitude than what God has. See, the world today wants us to have this mythological concept of tolerance. See, and by tolerance, they don't mean tolerating it, you know, by gritting your teeth and allowing it to happen. They mean approval. They redefine tolerance to mean approval. See, 
used to be tolerance meant, well, okay, you tolerated it. In other words, that's what they were doing. Um, they minded their own business, didn't bother you with it. You tolerated it. I mean, everybody has the freedom to use their sin nature. God gave that to us. But they've redefined tolerance now to approval, which means not only do they have, do I have to let them do it, but I have to approve of what they're doing and tell them that they're okay with it. And that's obviously not biblical. Grieved at their hardness of heart. We should have the same attitude God has on everything. And if it's something that God loves, we should love it. If it's something that God hates, we should hate it. If it's something that grieves him, it should grieve us. Because if we have a different attitude, then that's a problem. Then God also must show that to us. See, I think Philippians 2. Let's get some supplementary passages here and then we can uh, let you go this morning. Philippians chapter 2. It says, have the, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right. So if the Lord has an attitude, if God has an attitude, then we need to exhibit the same attitude. All right. We need to exhibit the same attitude. And if there is an adjustment that needs to be made, God's not the one that's going to make the adjustment. Okay, look over at chapter 3, verse uh, 15. Let us therefore as many as are perfect, that is as many as are complete, being made perfect, in other words, we're growing, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. That's a wonderful promise. Because when... You're in need of an attitude adjustment. When I'm in need of an attitude adjustment, when my attitude is not oriented where it needs to be, God is faithful. <laughs> he highlights it. He shows it to you. Sometimes through circumstances and details, sometimes through a real convicting Bible class, sometimes through uh, divine discipline, sometimes through a test, sometimes through... He has all sorts of ways he can do this, but he can make it very clear that your attitude is not lined up with his attitude and yours is in need of adjustment. See, now if you've got a husband and a wife and they have different thoughts on something, that's normal, <laughs> all right? Husband's got an opinion, she's got an opinion, and then what do you do? Well, you know, you give and take, you prefer and defer, you, you apply uh, principles of, of uh, love, and, and you find usually, you know, there's a compromise to be found. Kind of a, okay, I'll do what you want to do this time, but next time it'll be my turn, and we'll, we'll, we'll work this out, okay? Or we'll meet in the middle somewhere, or whatever, okay? But when with us and God, it doesn't work that way. If I've got an attitude and God has an attitude, we're not going to meet in the middle somewhere. There's not going to be any compromise. We're not going to do it my way this time and God's way next time. Somebody needs to change and it's not God. His attitude is perfect, righteous, holy. It doesn't change. I need to adjust to his change. See. And so if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. And I... I do appreciate that. Now, Ephesians has our text with respect to the anger. So we can get that. 
It's in Ephesians 4 and verse 26. Ephesians 4 and verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry and yet do not sin. If you, if you take off the and yet do not sin, you have a clause that says be angry, which is an imperative. We're ordered to be angry. We should have some anger with the right target, the right objective, the right mental attitude. Be angry and yet do not sin. In other words, don't allow your righteous anger to cross the line into carnality, to where you get carried away, to where the anger... See, the problem with anger, the carnal anger, is that the carnal anger is where your own pride, your own selfishness, your own ego has been offended. And you grow angry because you've been hurt. You grow angry because uh, you've been insulted or something else has gone wrong and in your selfishness that just shouldn't happen. See, but godly anger realizes that God is the one that has been offended. It is his standard that's been violated. Uh, You have the divine viewpoint that recognizes that this uh, evil is an attack on the person and glory of Jesus Christ. And so that angers you. It should anger you. But you don't take it personally because you're not the one whose righteous standard has been offended. You don't have a righteous standard. It's his righteous standard that's been offended. Also, it says, do not let the sun... Go down on your anger. We have to realize at the end of the day, there's, there's a certain thing called uh, close of business, as it were. End of business, as it were. And by end of business or end of the day, you realize that whatever else happened, you have to clear the decks. You have to just let it go. So that you don't go to sleep bearing something or, or uh, carrying with you something that could easily become a mental attitude sin. And uh, you have the opportunity to start the new day then with, uh, with uh, the decks are all cleared and you're ready now to, to begin a new day. And the way that's tied in with do not give the devil an opportunity, I think, is, is also vital. Because when you, when you delay those grudges, when you delay those mental attitudes day after day after day after day, it begins to build that pattern of resentment that the adversary can make use of. So do you have an anger today? Maybe. Could be a righteous anger today. Absolutely. But then at the end of the day, clear those decks. Let the Father know, Father, I've had this anger today. It's been righteous. It's been consistent with your attitude. It's been, it's been uh, appropriately applied. But at the same time, Father, I want to let it go. I'm going to pray for whoever the target of that anger was. I'm going to intercede on their behalf. Maybe they were an en- enemy. Maybe they were an adversary. And even though it's a righteous anger, Father, I'm letting it go. I'm giving it to you tonight, and I'm asking that you watch over me as I sleep. Don't allow any mental attitude sin to creep in through my subconscious in any kind of dream or other thing, and and uh, guard me through the night and give me a new day tomorrow. Very important. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There's more to it than that, but we'll uh, reserve that for future studies in uh, in Ephesians. I hope it should be obvious. It's like. Godly boasting versus sinful boasting. We've taught that. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We should boast in the Lord. But sinful boasting is boasting in me. Great things I have done, right? To Bob be the glory, great things he has done. That's not the song. It's to God be the glory, great things he has done, right? Um, So sinful boasting is bragging about self. Godly boasting is bragging about Christ. Sinful jealousy, godly jealousy. Sinful anger, godly anger. Okay? 
There is a godly jealousy. Paul told the Corinthians, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. There is such a thing. Even, a, a, you know, a legitimate godly pride. When a believer has applied the word of God and passed a test and, and, uh, and done well, that's encouraging. And parents love to see their children applying the word of God. And pastors love to see their flock applying the word of God. And that's a reason to be proud in a legitimate way. All right, there's more of that as well, but we'll let that go. All right, we have any questions? We've got five minutes. I'm going to let you go a little bit early this morning, but it was a pretty short, uh, like I say, we did, we did enough with the first two Sabbath controversies that by the time we got to this third one, it was uh, pretty easy to go through the details. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble and Thank you, Father, on this final Wednesday of this year that we look back and see all of your faithfulness day by day. Thank you for continuing to minister the Word of God to Austin Bible Church, and thank you for keeping this family class active for the uh, prayer time that the ladies engage in. Very valuable time. We just thank you and look forward to a new year. We look forward to your continued blessings. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.